We want very, very much, Lord, to hear from you. So teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 32. We've been in a study of uh, the life of Moses, and we're going to continue that study this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. This is Exodus 32, verse 1. This is what we read in the Word of God. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in the front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and to drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. This morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at uh, Aaron and Moses. These are two leaders. Um, these are two uh, leaders that were the, really the first leaders, uh, great national leaders of this people of God, the people of Israel. Uh, God used Moses and Aaron, as, as you know, to deliver them out of bondage and out of slavery in Egypt, to also guide them in the early part of that exodus. Uh, God used Moses in particular to outline a, a government for Israel, to write a code of law for Israel, to deliver a directory of worship for Israel, to instruct them on, as to how to go about entering into the presence of God and worshiping God. Both men were leaders in this fledgling nation. And both led in different ways at different times. Both men influenced people. And that, of course, is what leadership is. It is influencing other people. Uh, and that, if you stop and think about it, that makes all of us leaders. Because all of us influence some people around us. If you're a boss, you lead employees. If you're an employee, you lead a boss. Just depends on who you ask, right? If you're a teacher, you lead students. If you're a parent, you lead children. If you have friends, sometimes they lead you, sometimes you lead them. Leadership is essentially the art of influencing other people. We do it whether we know it or not. And leadership, of course, can be good. Leadership can also be bad. Christian leadership is all about influencing people for Jesus. It's everything from getting people to see that Jesus loves them, getting them to understand that he died for them on the cross, getting them to understand that it is Jesus who conquered sin and death. That's the identity of Jesus. That is Jesus' mission. Uh, it also includes things like uh, helping them know that Jesus wants them to follow him. Jesus wants them to know the Father. Jesus wants them to embrace the, the values of the Father and to know that the Father has a call on their life. Jesus wants people to love other people the way the Father loves people. Uh, Christian leadership is all about getting people to see life the way Jesus sees them. That's Christian leadership. Now, this morning we're going to look at these two men, Moses and Aaron. Uh, one leads really well, one not so much. Uh, it's a story actually of contrast. A look at how two people under stress in a crisis choose to lead. 
and we want to make some observations as we go along in this story that hopefully will help us to be better influencers of the people around us. In other words, to be better leaders. Are you with me so far? Okay. We're going to keep reading in this story. This is Exodus 32, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Wow. Interesting development from what we looked at last week. The people have been liberated from their slavery in Egypt by God, by Yahweh. And you remember that Pharaoh's heart was hard in this process. And so the process that God used was actually a series of plagues, 10 of them. Uh, the first two, uh, water turning into blood and frogs showing up in the gajillions. We don't know how many, but they were everywhere, everywhere to be seen. The magicians of Egypt actually were able to duplicate those plagues. And so they said, no big deal. We can do that. But then come gnats. And then come flies, and I mean gnats and flies everywhere. And then comes diseased livestock. All of the horses, all the donkeys, all the camels, all the herds, all the flocks of the Egyptians become diseased. And in these plagues and the ones that follow, the magicians of the Egyptians say, whoa, we can't do anything like that. This was frightening to them. And they warned Pharaoh this was beyond the power that any of them had. And then came boils to man and beast. And then came thunder, hail, and fire. And then came locusts that devoured the land. Then came three days of darkness, but only on the Egyptians. There was no darkness in the camp, in the homes, in the places where the Israelites lived. Imagine that. And then came the death of the firstborn. That was the last plague. That was the most devastating plague, as you can well imagine. And understand, too, these plagues were actually targeted. They were geared toward particular gods of the Egyptians. Uh, they, were, they were intended, actually, to embarrass those gods, to demonstrate that they were not real gods at all. Only Yahweh is the real God. For instance, the livestock plague showed how powerless Hathor was to protect farm animals. Uh, Hathor was an Egyptian god, usually depicted as a woman with a, a head and the ears of a cow. Sometimes she would just be depicted as a white cow um, itself. Uh, she was a, a god who was thought to provide food, and provide drink, provide meat, provide sustenance and things of that nature. And yet here was a god who could not even stop the cattle from being diseased. It was a, it was a direct dig at Hathor. Uh, the plague of darkness was an affront to the god Ra. Uh, Ra was the ruler of the sky for the Egyptians, the god of light, if you will. And yet, and yet here it was dark for the Egyptians and light over here for the Israelites. It was, a, it was a direct dig, a direct jab at the god of Ra, demonstrating that Yahweh is the one true god. Uh, the death of the firstborn was aimed directly at the Pharaoh and his household. It challenged the notion, in fact, that Pharaoh 
represented the collective Egyptian pantheon, this, these numbers of gods, and yet Pharaoh could do nothing to protect himself, his own family, let alone the families of Egyptians. And um, as you know, it was this plague, this last plague, uh, the coming of the angel of death that causes Pharaoh to give in. The Israelites are literally driven from Egypt, as God said he would do. Uh, the Israelites cross the Red Sea. The Pharaoh and his army pursue them. You know that story. You've seen that movie. They're destroyed. Moses and the people are led into the wilderness uh, of that area surrounding Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. He's going up there to receive the tablets, to hear from God, and he'll come back with the, the covenant tablets. And Moses is gone for a long time, 40 days, 40 nights, and the people become restless. In fact, the people get tired of waiting for Moses. They suspect that he's deserted them or that something has gone wrong. They're not really sure. But this they do know. They know that they need protection from the gods. They know that they need provision from the gods. They know that they need military success if they are to move this mass of people somewhere that becomes a home to them. They know they need the gods. And so they come to Aaron and they say, come make us gods who will go before us. That's their request to Aaron. And what this demonstrates perhaps most clearly is that they haven't really understood yet who Yahweh is. They haven't quite grasped his power, his supremacy, his plan, his purpose, his holiness. They are still perhaps thinking of him as kind of the, the tribal God of the Hebrews, right? Um, just one of the gods, so to speak. A God who did them a real solid by getting them out of bondage in Egypt. A God who maybe got a little lucky dealing with the Egyptians and with the Pharaoh and with the gods of Egypt. Because after all, that is the most powerful nation they knew about. And therefore, that nation had the most powerful God. So maybe this God, their God, this tribal God, got a little lucky, right? But where is he now? Where has Yahweh gone? It seems like he and Moses have disappeared. And these people understand that they can't stay forever motionless in the wilderness. They need food. They need water. They need shelter. They need a place to live. They've got to move. And so they come to Aaron and they say, make us gods who will go before us. And again, the point, they really don't understand who they are dealing with. But then again, neither do we, right? Neither do we. You see, Yahweh was not a little tribal god. They were going to learn that eventually. I mean, he is a God who is, in fact, everywhere, even with them in the wilderness, even when they don't know it. He is a God of power, a God who sustains everything, a God who knows everything about everyone, a God who wants complete surrender and complete obedience from his people. And it's at this particular point in the story of the Exodus uh, that we are just over four months into their journey, 120 days. And already they are forgetting Yahweh's instructions and they are trying to take charge of the situation and formulate their own plan for where they go and what they do next and what gods go with them. Uh, they even want to craft their own gods. That's what's behind this request that they make to Aaron. Make us gods who will go before us. They're saying, Aaron, we can't wait around any longer. We've already been here long enough. We've got to get moving. We need a God to go before us. So make us an idol to represent our gods. 
And uh, we read this today and we kind of scratch our heads because we know what's just happened. The plagues, the Red Sea delivery, all these things. And we wonder how could they possibly do this? How could they forget so quickly? But before we judge them, you know, we'd probably be wise to ask ourselves, how many days does it take us to forget God's instructions? How many days does it take us to forget God's call for us to follow him and to obey him? How many days does it take you to forget that God is with you no matter what you are going through? How many days does it take you to forget that he has a plan and you ought to follow it? Versus, you know, striking out with your own plan. How many days? Um, I'll bet not 120. That's how many days they were into this journey. I think what we, uh, I think what we see here in this text is really kind of a central truth about fallen human nature. And that is that as human beings, we tend to forget God's identity very quickly. We tend to forget his wisdom, forget his instruction, forget his promises, forget his provision, even forget his calling on our life to obey and to follow very quickly. Because of this, our our commitment to him, our devotion to him wavers and changes even with the winds. We can one moment be so inspired and so fired up and so crystal clear about God's identity and our identity and our calling and our purpose. And then the very next moment we forget. It's interesting. Uh, just before Moses disappeared up the mountain for 40 days on this 40 day retreat with God, uh, the Israelites had this this powerful, inspiring, God-filled time of worship there at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses had built an honor, uh, an altar, excuse me, and God had showed up and covered the mountain in cloud. This is what we read about that situation. It says, then uh, Moses sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in the bulls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took uh, the, uh, the book of the covenant and he read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey, they say. I mean, these people are fired up. They are loving God. They are fully devoted followers for the moment, right? And then 40 days go by. Moses is missing. And they forget. Just like we forget. It's what always happens. It's spiritual entropy is what we're watching here. It's universal in the lives of individuals and in the lives of groups, institutions. Entropy. And I think this is why God builds into Israel's routines, and I would even say ours, this thing of Sabbath. You see, people need to rest. That is, they need to stop doing what they ordinarily do. You know, it's funny, we get all confused about Sabbath. We treat Sabbath like it's something else we've got to do. You know, we got a real busy schedule, lots of things we got to do. Oh, gosh, I got to do Sabbath as well. You know, it's something we add to the, actually, it's the exact opposite. Sabbath is actually stopping doing certain things so that you can do other things. Uh, Sabbath is one of the reasons that we gather here. You see, Sabbath is probably more than anything else about remembering. It's about remembering. On the Sabbath, Israel's attention was supposed to get refocused, if you will, back on God, on who God is, on who they are, on what their purpose was there in the wilderness. 
Uh, They would reflect on God's covenant promises, on God's love for them, on God's provision for them in the sacrifices, sacrifices paying for their sin. They would reflect on God's plan, on his teaching, on his purpose, on his law, all of these things. God wanted his people to have a regular rhythm of remembering. It's not any different today. You know, in a little bit, we're going to partake of this meal, probably 45, 50 minutes from now. Uh, Jesus said this, this is so interesting. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what he said. He wanted us to have a regular rhythm of remembering. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, he said. Uh, Regular gathering, regular worshiping, regular teaching, regular remembering. That's what it's all about. And one of the key, uh, this is one of the key ways, I think, that God means for us, for his people, to fight spiritual entropy. And if practices like this are not priorities in your life, I would just guess that you can very quickly forget all about Yahweh, all about God. I know I can. You know, uh, I've said this before. One of the great blessings in my life is that I'm I'm a paid worshiper. Did you know I get paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars just to be here and do this? The, the reality is, though, that, that for me, I am richly and deeply blessed by having to be here and by having to do what I do. And the dark part of me, I, you know, I, I don't know how good a volunteer worshiper I would be if I weren't paid to be here. But I am thankful. I'm thankful that I'm a captive audience, so to speak, right? You're not. When you show up, you choose to be here of your own volition. Me, if I don't choose to be here, I could get fired. But, uh, but I'm thankful for this dynamic in my life. I need regular remembering. And I'll bet my church attendance is better than yours. And I'll bet that might be because God knew that without my having to be here, maybe I wouldn't be. I don't know. But I'm thankful that I am. I'm thankful for the rhythm. I am thankful for what this this vocation means in my life because I'm constantly forced to remember. The value of that is inestimable for me. Now, I'm um, I'm guessing you get tired sometimes of hearing stuff I say. I'm sure that's true. Uh, But one of the things I talk a lot about is our mission, our identity, our calling as a people. And the way we talk about that here at Deer Creek Church, we say we are a people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be because that's kind of the truth about us or it ought to be. We ought to know we're not perfect. We shouldn't be pretending about it, right? And we say that our calling together is to reach up, to worship God, to be regular worshipers of God, and to reach in, to connect with each other in small group context so that we can challenge and encourage each other to grow, and to reach out, to serve others, and to love others. And this is who we are together. This is what we do together. Now, that's what people needed to hear Aaron say to them in this story that we just read. They needed to hear Aaron say to them, folks, remember, we don't fashion our own gods. That's, that's not who we are. We serve and obey the one true living God. We follow him. We move when he moves. We obey. We are his people. He is our God. And understand, this is a defining moment in the life of Israel. If Aaron had been leading well, I think he would have discerned that and acted 
differently. I think he, I think he'd have realized what was at stake and challenged Israel to remember. But as you know, and as we saw, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me, he says. And then it says, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Those are actually important little facts right there. You see, honestly, I think Aaron kind of caves to pressure here. The people immediately begin to worship the idol, the idol that he's created. And Aaron, you see, compromises something that I think he very quickly realizes he had no business compromising. Because we read in verse 5, it says, When Aaron saw this, when he saw that the people began immediately to worship the idol, when he saw this, he built an altar. That's a an altar for sacrifice. He built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to who? The calf? To the Lord. That word is Jehovah, Yahweh. Tomorrow we're going to have a festival to the Lord. And he puts this altar right in front of this golden calf. You see, I think Aaron knows the Lord. He, and he knows Yahweh. He knows that he has no business crafting an image to represent this God or any other God for that matter. And I think he's hoping that he can get the people to view the calf as kind of a, maybe a representation somehow of Yahweh, thus making the people happy and maybe not making Yahweh too mad. And Aaron kind of goes for a compromise here. And instead of remembering what's true and standing up to the people and challenging the people to obedience, he compromises. He doesn't want the people to be mad at him. And so he chooses a path here that's really a path of less resistance. He does what they want him to do. And this leads to unspeakable tragedy, as poor leadership often does. Now, we have to contrast Aaron here to Moses. Uh, you know, the people have sinned. Moses is up the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. And this is what we read. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Well, that's interesting. I know if I were Moses, I'd be thinking, wait a minute. Uh, these people are not my people. This plan is not my plan. My life was going along pretty good there in the wilderness until that whole burning bush thing happened. And ever since then, my life has not been the same. But Moses doesn't say anything like that. Uh, instead, here's what we read. We read that Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Now, this is the same pattern that we saw last week. Moses developed a pattern that in times that were confusing, in times that were overwhelming, he learned to move toward God, not away from him. Very, very important. Even, even when you don't understand the circumstances, moving toward God, not away from him, is very key. Uh, Moses has what I'm guessing was a very difficult conversation with God on behalf of his people, the people of Israel. And then once that conversation takes place, Moses heads down the mountain to do whatever needs to be done to sort out this mess. He's even willing to confront the people for their own good. And that, that's good leadership. This is what we read. When Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Stop right there. 
commentators go wild with this, you know, what was going on with the breaking of the tablets thing and why did that happen and so on and so forth. Really, all that happened is he tripped. No, I'm kidding. Probably what's going on is Moses, as he's coming down, God has already warned him what's going on in the camp. And as, as he's coming down, remember, these tablets represent the very writing of God, written with the finger of God. They represent, they embody the promises of the covenant and, if you will, the curses of the covenant. If you don't obey, you know, bad. and when he comes into the, down to the camp and he sees all the revelry going on and the sin that's happening and the idolatrous worship, he knows that to bring these tablets into the camp would literally destroy the camp. And I'm guessing that's, that's probably what's behind the, the breaking of these tablets. He'll get more tablets, but for now, these tablets are broken. And it says, he does something else. It says, he took the calf they had made and he burned it in the fire and then he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water, whatever their water source was, and he made the Israelites drink it. Yuck. That could not have been good. What is Moses doing? Well, Moses directly confronts the idolatrous worship. He calls off the revelry, the party, and he challenges the people to repent. That's what this drinking thing is. This idol you've made, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to completely destroy it. I'm going to throw it on the water and you're going to drink it. You're going to internalize the fact that you have sinned against God. You're going to own this, what you've done. And that's a big part of what repentance is. You do have to own what it is you've done wrong. He calls them back to their earlier promise to obey God. In other words, he gets them to remember, to remember that what they were doing is wrong. And you see, this is good leadership. It's the kind of leadership that we all need, especially in churches. Um, you know, just a kind of a, a, an aside, you know, churches get planted. We love planting churches. That's Brett and Aaron Weston are going to plant a church. And, you know, when churches get started, they're all about preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, inviting others to join them and so on. And churches grow. And pretty soon churches get to a size where people need to be cared for and people need to be led and worship needs to happen. And then there's kids that need a certain ministry and students that need a ministry and young adults that need a ministry and middle adults and old adults and dying adults and, you know, men and women's ministry and softball teams and adult education and so on and so forth. And none of that's bad. But in all this process, do you know that churches can actually forget why they exist? They can start thinking that the reason they exist is for themselves. Yeah. Churches can forget who they are. They can lose sight of what God actually calls them to do. And they can forget that a church is, it's not an institution that's made for itself. It's actually an institution that exists for others. Uh, you've seen this before. People in churches can become very inwardly focused, almost protectionistic, almost like it's us in here versus them out there, right? And instead of loving and serving others, we resent and we condemn them. Or instead of telling others about Jesus, we tell them how mad God is at them and how bad the stuff is that they do. Or instead of inviting them to come join us, we inadvertently but loudly send the message, you are not welcome here. And when churches do that, we start not to look like the people we're supposed to be. When that happens, we stop inviting friends to church or we stop praying for the friends that we care about and love but who don't know Jesus. We stop sharing our, our faith with them in appropriate ways and at appropriate times. Pretty soon, things like reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out, they're, they're, they're really just slogans for walls. They don't really describe our mission anymore. 
I had a conversation this week with a pastor in Tennessee. Um, he was describing a church there. It's 200 years old. 200 years old. Five generations of people. Unfortunately, this church is a huge, huge edifice right in downtown in a city there in Tennessee. Um, unfortunately, this church is dying. It's declining in size. It's declining in health. It's declining in impact in terms of its impact in the city. And there's a pastor in that church, an assistant pastor, uh, who wanted to do something about this. So he started a new worship service in the church. Their normal worship service is very traditional. It's very dressy. I mean, if you showed up without a, a coat jacket and a tie or a very nice dress, you would be out of place. The sanctuary is all white. Have you ever seen? I mean, it's beautiful. You know, all the pulpit and everything is this beautiful, white, gorgeous, gorgeous sanctuary uh, furniture and architecture and very high liturgy. And, and uh, this assistant pastor just felt like that would be a little intimidating for some people there in the inner city that they, they wanted to reach. So he decided to start a more contemporary service in the basement. It was early on Sunday morning so they could get it over with and in time for the service upstairs to happen. And it was kind of casual and kind of contemporary. I mean, people could wear pretty much anything. If you wanted to wear a coat and tie, you could, but if you wanted to wear jeans and shorts and all that kind of stuff, T-shirts and what have you, uh, you could. And you could even drink coffee in the service. This is totally revolutionary. Um, but many of the regular longtime members in this church, this pastor was telling me, are resenting this. They think that drinking coffee and dressing casually and not singing hymns is downright disrespectful to God. It's dishonoring to him. Even though some 200 new people have become a part of this, this basement worship service. Now, ironically, I was also told that this church was historically on the cutting edge of trying to reach people with the gospel many years earlier, uh, back, back in the 70s and the 80s. This church actually had a TV ministry, you know, where those big cameras are moving, you know, taking pictures and all that and broadcasting on television. Back then, too, some people thought that that was terribly disrespectful to God in worship because it was distracting. But the leaders back then did it anyway because they wanted more people to hear about Jesus. And they knew there were people sitting at home in their living rooms, in their bathrobe, having a cup of coffee who weren't going to come to church. And they, they just decided we're going to broadcast right into their home. They understood that was their mission. That was their calling. Getting the message out even to people who wouldn't come to church. And they believed that that was why they existed. Now, here's the thing. Here's the truth about that church. And all churches, really. It's just easy for us to forget who God is. It is easy for us to forget who we are. It is easy for us to forget why we're here and what we're called to do and what we're called to be. Churches are called to take the gospel into every culture. But here's the problem. Cultures are always changing on us. You know, once upon a time, I had hair. Uh, but, but I digress. That has nothing to do with the message. I also used to come to church in a coat and tie, you know, suit, whole nine yards, the whole deal. Uh, my, my shoes matched my suit and this, that, and the other, you know, white, everything was white. I'm just kidding. It wasn't really right. But, but uh, and a lot of others would dress up to come. So, now, I, the reason I did that is I wanted visitors to feel perfectly comfortable because a lot of times visitors would show up dressed that way, just thinking, well, if I go to church, I guess I got to dress up. A lot of our regular people just wore shorts, T-shirts, and drank coffee in the service. But, but others of us thought about that, and we thought, you know what? We want to relate to this culture and make anyone and everyone feel comfortable here. And um, 
And that was then, and this is now. Um, I lost all my hair, and I also lost all my suits. But not because that's just what we want to do. It's because we actually believe that it might be a better way to reach the culture where we happen to be located here. Cultures are always changing. That means churches have to always be thinking about how best to reach any particular culture, which means if a church is healthy, it's going to always be changing styles, changing songs, changing dress, maybe changing architecture, changing the methods it uses in order to engage the culture as the culture changes. I hope you do understand that the kind of songs we sing today, you won't be singing when I'm dead and gone. I don't know what you'll be singing, but you'll be singing something different. I don't know if people will dress this way, but uh, they're not going to dress this way forever. This church, to be relevant and to keep engaging the culture as the culture around it changes, it's going to have to change. It will always have to change. But what won't change, what the church cannot compromise, is its message. It cannot compromise its mission. It cannot change its vision or its calling because those things are core values. Those things stay the same, you see. God forbid we ever lose sight of who God is. God forbid we ever get foggy or fuzzy about who we are or what we are called to do or why we are here. These things are our core values. So when we talk about the fact that we are people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be, who are reaching up, reaching in, reaching out, doing everything we possibly can to worship God, to connect with each other, to serve on and love others and let them know about Jesus, that is who we are. That is what we do. And that doesn't change. Language describing it can change, but the mission doesn't change. The core values don't change. And the degree degree to which we influence other people will depend on how clear we stay about those kinds of things. Good leadership helps us do this. It's one of the things that we see Moses do. He calls the people to a place of remembering, you see. No, 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 you need to remember who God is. You need to remember who he has made us to be, a people for his own name. You need to remember why we are here at the mountain. You need to remember what we are called to do and who we are called to be. Effective leadership keeps core values always before the organization. That's the first thing we learn about good leadership. Here's a second. And we see this contrasted in the story too. And this has to do with embracing responsibility. You see, effective leaders embrace responsibility. doesn't matter where you lead, family, school, Job, church, doesn't matter where you lead. Effective leaders embrace responsibility. Ineffective leaders don't. Moses faces this crisis squarely. The people have forgotten Yahweh. They are bowing down to a golden calf. Moses boldly steps into this situation to lead. He pleads with God on behalf of his people. He battles the leaders of this movement. We'll see that in a moment. And he calls the people to repent and to take action. If you read the story, you see that Moses, we're told, uh, went and stood at the entrance to the camp, and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And it says all the Levites rallied to him. Now, don't misunderstand that. It's not saying that only the Levites rallied to him. It says that all the Levites rallied to him, and so did tens of thousands of other Israelites rally to him. All of those who wanted to follow Yahweh rallied to Moses. But understand, this also implies that there were some, even many, who didn't. Uh, Literally, a battle follows. 
And in that battle, 3,000 people lose their lives. Think about that. These were people who were done with Moses. They were tired of his leadership. They didn't like where he was taking them. These were people who were done with Yahweh. They had asked for a golden calf. They were already moved beyond Yahweh. They had rejected his identity, they had rejected his mission, and they had rejected his call on their lives. Contrast that now to Aaron. Uh, We read these words. It says, He, Moses, said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron said. Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods and we'll go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Does Aaron evade or embrace responsibility? Yeah, he evades responsibility. Honestly, it's poor leadership. He tries to pass the buck. He offers excuses. He actually blames the people, not himself. He should have just owned the fact that he had made a very serious mistake. I mean, all leaders do make mistakes. Am I right? Yeah, bosses make mistakes. Teachers, coaches, parents, pastors all make mistakes all the time. The trouble is, if you don't own your mistakes, you can't fix them and you won't grow. That's the real crux of the issue right there. Now, when we think about leadership and influencing people around us, it needs to be said that if we are talking about the mistakes that leaders make, it's just as unhealthy to take responsibility for things you can't control as it is to not take responsibility for the things you can. You see, the point is good leadership gets real clear about what is And what isn't your responsibility? There's a saying that helps illustrate this. You've heard the saying, you've probably said the saying, you can lead a horse to water, but can't make him drink. That's true. You really can't. What's the rest of that? People will say, well, you can feed him salt. You know, you can get get him drink. But there's certain things that are your responsibility as a leader, as an influencer of people. There are certain things that are not. And a leader leader needs to be clear on what he or she can and cannot do and is or is not responsible for. This is especially important for parents in the parenting process. You know, when your kids are little, you kind of think you're responsible for everything. And yet you know that you you watch them act out. You have to discipline them and figure out how to correct them, figure out how to teach them, figure out how to help a character develop. But as they get older and older and older, you start seeing them make decisions and, and go down a certain path, this path, that path. And you've got to be able to rightly discern what is your responsibility and what is not. It's part of actually releasing young people as they become adults. Very important, or you'll live in a a very beat-up, difficult place as a parent if you don't make those kinds of discernments. Um, Aaron was responsible for making the golden calf. Is that clear to everybody? I mean, he was responsible for that. Not the people, certainly not the fire. He says, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That's bull. (laughs) Some of you got it, you know. Aaron was responsible for giving these people what they wanted, you see, which was an image. It was an idol. It was an alternative to Yahweh. And what he should have done is he should have said, no, no, I will not do that. 
He should have reminded them that who Yahweh was, what Yahweh had done for them and who they were and what Yahweh wanted them to do and not to do. That's what Aaron should have done. Whether you lead in ministry or at work or in school or in a family or just with friends, get clear on what is and what is not your responsibility and where you are responsible, take ownership. Stop blaming others. Stop making excuses for yourself. Uh, in the parenting realm, if we're talking parenting, if you need improvement in parenting, uh, get in a small group that we've got that's all about growing up kids in a way that honors God. Read a book. Go to a counselor. Whatever. I mean, just in a, if you lead in a business and you need to lead better, go to a seminar, get a book, get counsel. I mean, take responsibility for what is your responsibility. But don't take responsibility for what is not. All all things, churches, businesses, schools, families, all of them need people who will appropriately embrace responsibility. Aaron would not do it. Moses did. Moses, in effect, says, God, with your help, I will do everything in my power to bring these people back to you, back to obedience. And this brings me to one final point. Uh, effective leaders, people who have deep influence on the lives of others, are people who first remind people of the core values and stay very clear about that. Secondly, they take appropriate responsibility to make sure that what needs to happen, happens. And then third, uh, this is the last one, and Jesus is the ultimate example of this. They are willing to sacrifice for the sake of those they lead. You know, we live in a world that's very unclear about this. We tend to think of leaders as people who just boss others around. They have power, they have control, and they're going to use it for themselves. But here's the truth about good leadership, especially kingdom leadership. Kingdom leaders are willing to sacrifice enormously for the sake of those they lead. This is a key ind indicator of a good leader, especially a kingdom leader. Kingdom leaders are willing to sacrifice enormously for, the, enormously for the sake of those they lead. For example, kingdom leaders will endure criticism that they don't deserve. Kingdom leaders will face opposition, even if it's not coming directly at them, it's coming at the people they lead. Kingdom leaders will expend enormous amounts of energy and resources in order to lead people. Kingdom leaders will commit to hard personal growth. When somebody comes to them and points out a flaw and says, this needs to be addressed, they listen, they wrestle, and they work to change, to grow. Kingdom leaders will carry the burdens of the people they lead. Kingdom leaders, good kingdom leaders, do this all the time, usually without any notice and usually without any thanks. That's not why they do it. Aaron, on the other hand, Aaron gets confronted, you know, by the people. They ask him to make an idol, and he doesn't endure any criticism. He just goes with the flow. Uh, he, he doesn't face any opposition. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't take a stand. And then when Aaron is confronted, actually, by Moses, what did these people do to you that led, you to, uh, that you led them into such great sin? He says, you know how prone these people are to evil. He blames the people. He excuses himself. Aaron does not lead well. With Moses, it's different. God makes Moses this incredible offer uh, in uh, 32 verse 9. Uh, God says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. 
Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. Wow, what a great offer that is, right? I mean, here's Moses' chance to get rid of these whining crybabies. We want to go back to Egypt. We need more water. We're tired of manna. We want meat. Are we there yet? You know, on and on it goes. This is Moses' big chance. He is faced with a defining moment. And don't, you know, what I think God is really doing here is he's growing up Moses. He's giving Moses this, this defining moment. Make a decision, Moses, about who you are and who you stand with. God already knows what he's going to do. But the question is, will Moses distance himself from the people and go, yeah, God, let him have it. That's a great idea. Or will he identify with them and even sacrifice for them? What will he do? Well, this is what we read. It says, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. There he goes again. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Moses says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Here's what we see Moses doing. He confronts the people. He destroys the calf. He has them repent. That's the thing of having them drink the water. He fights a battle with the worst and most stubborn offenders, but he's not done. Look at this description. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. He doesn't diminish what they've done. It's, oh, it's no big deal. No, he says, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Unbelievably sacrificial. Please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses goes to the mat for these stiff-necked people. He puts everything on the line, even his life. That is amazing leadership. That is sacrificial kingdom leadership. Now, of course, God doesn't require this. He's not looking for Moses to make atonement for his people because Moses can't. Moses is just like his people. I mean, we're going to see some stories to come where Moses makes similar kinds of mistakes. Hubris, arrogance, disobedience. Uh, Moses can't make atonement for his people. Even though in our story, the story we're looking at this morning, it's great what Moses does. He's a great kingdom leader, but there are other times when he is not. He can't make atonement. Someone else is going to have to do that, and that, of course, is Jesus. A leader much, much greater than Moses. A leader without any sin or without any flaws. One who makes a much greater sacrifice, in fact. Jesus said, I am willing to lay down my life for all of my stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And of course, that's Moses, and that's you, and that's me. 
Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the father says, yes, that's the plan. That is what we're going to do. And that is kingdom leadership, friends. That's how the ultimate kingdom leader led his people. He died for people and did for people what the people could not do for themselves. And then he tells us to remember. And that is what this meal is about. It's about us remembering what Jesus has done. It's not a... uh, coincidence at all that we've been given a sacrament that centers around this idea of remembering. Uh, Jesus in the upper room with the disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget, have a rhythm of remembering. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he said that when we drink of this cup, the cup that he drank from, we are remembering his death until he returns. And we invite you to partake of this meal if you come and partake in faith. Uh, This is a meal that remembers the grace of Jesus. And uh, the one proper prerequisite is coming to this table in faith. If you're not sure where you stand in terms of knowing Jesus, It's best for you not to partake of this meal. Parents, if you're going to have children partake, then you need to know kind of where they're at spiritually. Do they understand what's signified in this meal?